Welcome to the Masterlink podcast with James and Stefan. Getting to know creatives in the music industry. Available on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. If you like our podcast, you can support us on patreon.com forward slash Masterlink sessions. I've got to start with COVID for the entertainment business and us professional musicians has completely destroyed us, okay? It's given us such a tough time to deal with it, but we've dealt with it. We've coped, we've adapted, we've gone online, we're working from home because that's what we've been told. And then our internet providers decide 18 months later that they can't run the internet to our houses anymore. So everyone that's watching this and listening to this, I apologize, but I'm trying to run this via a 3G off my mobile phone because Vodafone have decided that the cables are now not running to my house. So after 12 days of giving me a load of BS, that's where I'm at. Anyway, good morning, everybody. Hi, Mike. <laughs> <laughs> Hello, everybody. Today we're talking to a super chilled out Mike Dolbear. Uh, cheers. I've got my coffee. Cheers, everybody. <laughs> you, Mike, you... You may have heard there was a program on Radio 4, which is called Feedback. I'm, I don't know if you know it, but one of the callers who called in said, I'm very disappointed at the, at the, at the amount of dropouts um, of the call-ins um, um, to, all, to all the radio shows. And obviously they had to drag in some Radio 4 controller or whatever to explain that, that, that Radio 4 are not in control of <laughs> people's um, internet service providers. It's brilliant, isn't it? I love it. I mean, it's... <laughs> I think it, it might have been Mike. I mean, to be honest, it is amazing for, for us, like I said, in the entertainment business, that because, you know, 18 months ago, we did all panic um, and worried how we were going to get through this. And OK, some of us were set up, but not for the extent that we needed to be. And I think that a lot of people have adapted, um, which, you know, anyone in the entertainment business has had to adapt over and over again, many, many times, many generations. But we did adapt to it. But like I said, when it gets to a stage like this where actually it is completely out of your control now. You can have all the gear. You can have absolutely everything you've got. Unfortunately, this is a very soundproof room, which means it's also the walls are very thick and it's very. Um, but yeah, and it's just they don't. No one seems to really care. That I think that's the, the problem. I get it. It's, you know, Wi-Fi. When we start relying on something else, uh, I either. The Wi-Fi. I mean, if I wanted to send files, there's no way I'd be sending files. I couldn't. I'd have to be going down to. I don't even know where I'd be going. I don't even know where you go if if you have to send large files now. To, but luckily, trying to teach online um, and having my mobile phone running on data is just like oh my goodness. But this look, you look lovely. I mean, even Stefan. It, even well, Stefan looks thank pretty you. good, and that's yeah, pretty rare. Thanks. The sun shining in his face. Look. <laughs> Well, I think that's the first time ever, you know, and you got me today. <laughs> you got you on a good day. <laughs> and if any, uh, yeah, and if anyone want to contact Mike, it's Mike Dober at internetruns.com. <laughs> hang on, hang on. Uh, in, so, sorry, uh, feel in your free language, to use that. Though, it broke up because it actually said internet runs. That's a completely different word to internet rants, by the way. <laughs> oh, come on, man. Now I'm getting like, ah. Oh. This Mike Dober. I like no. this guy. 
<laughs> you know, Mike Mike showed me where the beat was in 1996. He still hasn't found it. <laughs> Luck. It's all recording, isn't it? Can you? Five. Wow. Rant, rants. Rants. Uh, okay, well. Rants. Okay, you guys, let's should we converse in Austrian? <laughs> oh, he's back. There he is. He's back. This there is, is. going to be this is this would be a fun podcast. What I love about it is that Mike has completely hijacked our intro. He's completely went off on a tangent. I no, just no, love it. No, it's great. It's great. And I think I no, think we, we love should, that. We should we should continue. Steph, I Steph and Mike, I want to hear how you two know each other. How do you, how does that connection work? Back in what do you say 1996? 1996. Yeah, I, I leave the older men. Well, no, I let you explain because you've got the dates. I can't remember the dates. Uh, my connection is unsuitable. Oh no, it's back. Okay, um, you've got the dates. How did we meet? Well, I know how we met, but what year was it? I think it was 1996. Okay, and Stefan was my partner uh, in the rhythm section. Ooh. Yeah, well, that's that's the best way to call it. Great bass player. Thank you. Um, and as most people know out there, you always need a good. I think I'd been. I think I'd been at that job probably far too long by the time you'd come in. By the way, Stefan, I think I'd already done about six years. And nice. So it's always nice to have a decent bass player to sort of oh, just relax and rely on. So um, so go on, come on, Stefan. Well, I came in like you know, like uh, you know, bright. Bright eyes, shiny eyes, and wow, here I am, and straight out of your music college, and I really wanted, like, you know, I want to do a really good job, you know. So tell tell everyone. Well, let's leave it to you, even though you're the younger member of the of the group. Uh, <laughs> oh yeah, no, like, <laughs> but at least. Well, um, I can't recall the show. Was it the new Talk of Town or the Talk of Town? The, the show what was, it was um, Talk of London. It was at the New London Theatre. At the New London Theatre. Yeah, yeah and that's it was right. the old, before your time, in my time, it was the old talk of the town, which was um, notorious in for bringing over a lot of the American artists. In fact, I'm going to get my facts wrong here, but the latest film on about Judy Garland, and I'm trying to remember what it was called, but the Hollywood blockbuster that just came out, was based all around her last stint at the Talk of the Town, which was in, um, at the time, it was in Shaftesbury Avenue. So when they moved, when they changed, they took it to the uh, Jury Lane. This, like I said, was long before me and Stefan, by the way, but they took it to the, um, to the uh, Jury Lane, uh, which was the old ITV TV studios. I think maybe Wogan was recorded there and a few of the big, big chat shows back in the day. Um, and carried on the same sort of format, still did cabaret, dancing. And it was like, it's, it's quite interesting, Stefan, now that you, that job doesn't exist. So it's, it's almost like trying to explain what a cassette is to young kids, you know, because that job isn't, doesn't exist anymore. So, but we basically played four hours a night, back to cabaret, did some dance music. At the end of the show, which I think finished about quarter past 11 at night, then our job, because uh, I got a pay rise for the band because of this, our job was to keep the audiences as long as, in as, as long as possible dancing so they would spend more money behind the bar. So on a, on a, on a bad night, we'd be finishing at half past midnight. Um, but it was quite a cool, I mean, it was, what, six nights a week contract? I think we were contracting for six nights a week, whether we worked six or not. Wow. Yeah. And my drum kit, I don't think my drum kit moved for 10 years. 
Except when the uh, when there was a bomb bomb scare and the and the police dogs came in, I I moved a lot of stuff quickly in case the dogs peed on my drum kit. <laughs> and apart from that, my dog <laughs> my drum kit didn't move. <clears throat> That's about right, wasn't it? So that, that, I think that sums it up, doesn't it, Stefan? Wow, I mean, this is such a such a great summary, much better than what I remember. I mean, what I remember from the gig, one of the key things is like <clears throat> walking down with my base to Trafalgar Square and taking the night bus you know, to, to get back home because there was the, I didn't drive. I didn't have a car. So it was the only way to get, but it's not like I was stood there, like, you know, with all the drunks on a Saturday night or whatever, <laughs> you know, puking on me, you know, trying to get home on a night bus with my base, which of course I didn't want to leave at the theater being like, you know, I need to practice. Yeah. I need to get up to Mike Dobis level. I got to go home and shed. Um, <laughs> I got to, I got to shed smoke gets in your eyes yeah. or whatever it's called. <laughs> <laughs> but you came in, so when you came in, we were, uh, what size band were we? Because when I started, it was an 11-piece band. Oh, my God, no. We were, like, completely chopped down. It was, it, we were just, it was the four of us, I think it was, um, was it Jenny, Paul, you, me? And it was, there must have been a guitarist, No. No, I, I don't think no, we had a guitarist. Must have been. No, we must have had a guitar. A cabaret they, they, band without without a guitarist. <clears throat> well, <clears throat> you know, James. Again, here it goes. This is. I mean, this is. This now is obviously what everybody does. I'm going to shatter. What What's the topic, by the way? What's the podcast topic? Uh, this. It, it's the world of Mike Dolbear. <laughs> uh, because because obviously back in the day, <clears throat> now everybody's using backing tracks, and of course everything's on a click and. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, I don't want to break your heart, but sometimes when you go to see your favourite pop band and you look at the band and go, there's no band on the stage, there's no musicians on the stand, bandstand anymore, there's only singers on the stage. Obviously, it's all being backing tracks. Um, well, we were sort of the start of it. So when it orig- when I first started, there was an 11-piece band and everything, obviously, you heard was being played live. Mm. As various cabarets came in, what they used to do was be, obviously, they'd bring in backing tracks and they'd go, right, what have you got? <clears throat> oh, there's no brass on this. Okay, well, we put some backing, we put the brass on the backing tracks or we put backing vocals on the backing tracks. And then the rhythm section used to play over the top. So we would always play live, but we'd play live to backing tracks, which is where we had to learn to play to a click. And this all sounds bizarre now, but obviously, once upon a time, none of the, that existed. Mm. I'm old enough not to remember not having a click, you know, not <laughs> having to play completely in time. You know, I remember those days. Um, but I then that remind, that's reminded me now, Stefan. So I think when you came in, I was the musical director, I think, at the time. Yes, sir. Um, right. And I think I was the I think we were the last band before it closed down, weren't we? We must have finished there. Yeah. Absolutely. There was a hoo-ha and then all of a sudden it was all gone. And I remember one of the last things I did, it was I did like uh, talking about backing tracks. I did the backing tracks for our Jesus Christ Superstar medley. Oh, there you go. <laughs> I don't even remember that. <laughs> but I know I I kicked up um, because they they wanted to cut the band again. They kept cutting, cutting, cutting. They <laughs> wanted to cut the you band only again. at the end. <laughs> no, but they didn't want a bass player. They said we can get a keyboard that what? plays exactly. Did they ever look player. at my hair? You know, I spend all my money on my hair, man. I think that was the problem. They did look at your hair. I think <laughs> you were, were the like, problem. Oh. You had hair envy. My <laughs> God, come forward now. 
No, I said I was the one that went, listen, if you get rid of the bass player as well, that's it, I'm out. I'm not playing to bass pedals. This isn't, and then no disrespect to what I'm about to say to all the people that are watching it, but this isn't like a little tin pot, you know, holiday camp gig where you can have organ and drums and, and the bass is on the, I'm not doing that. This is a, this is the talk of London. Um, if you're going to make cuts, make it elsewhere, but not on the band. So I, I, I stood my stand. There was no way that I was going to um, not have a bass player. So I think, if I remember right, I'm sure we must have had a guitarist. There must have been five. Can't, I think that's as low be. as we go. Because normally guitarists, you remember, we must have had the mildest, meekest guitarist in the world. I think no we had Sean. Yeah, there you go. I can't remember Sean. Sorry, Sean. I'm sure now that I remember a No, hold on, Mike. No, you know why I know this? Because we've done those press picks because I remember at the time, it's all coming back. Sorry, listeners, this is like crazy. <laughs> but, you know, remember, we said, like, the gig is gone. Let's go out as a function band. And we had those pictures taken and it was just yeah, before did. us. And we had, who was the sound engineer who was going out with one of the dancers? And we Alan. had, no, it wasn't Alan. He was from Portugal or Spain. Oh, yeah. Um, and he... <laughs> no, and so, ladies and gentlemen, please welcome to the senile... <laughs> but we, 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 Musicians stuck, podcast. We, we stuck him in the picture so we looked like a bigger bed because we only were four. And he, you know what I mean? Oh, and I, I, I still have all those pictures, you know? And that's what I remember. Well, maybe we should go out now. Maybe we should put the... Geek, put the it's a nice thought, Mike. Um, but like, I'm going to move this on because otherwise people go, well, Mike and Steph should go out and have a beer and talk about it. Although I know that you don't drink beer and nothing else of that matter. So we can have a, a club soda and talk it through. Um, but Mike, you know, I thought about this yesterday. Why did you go into teaching so heavily after that and why didn't pursue a, like a career in the West End like on that because you I think you're one of the most industrious people I know you can put your hand to anything so why did you go no like you know displaying no I'm going to set up a really successful teaching practice and uh, practice and I, I remember coming out to you when you were still in London you had like the it was kind of a shed in the back of your house or something where you had a teaching mm -hmm. practice man and they were like what I kind of hundreds of little people queuing up, you know, to kind of to come through and, you know, and you're like looking at the clock. Yeah, I've got 30 minutes. And then the next kid is coming in. I'm going to whatever the tune of the day was. So you were industrious, like so impressive. So tell us more about that. OK, well, first of all, I do straight away apologize because there was no little people that came to this school. So I do apologize about Stefan's inappropriate behavior. Um, there were little comparison the music it, it, came it, up it to my chest. It wasn't a little shed in the back of my garden that I spent a fortune building out of brick, etc. etc. But apart from that, Ooh. um obviously Ooh. Ooh, sorry. <laughs> so um, it's a good question now, I was teasing. So it's a very good question. Um, there was a couple of reasons. First of all, I'd done I'd done the West End thing before the Talk of London. Um, I'd done shows pretty early on, um, so I didn't want to go back into it. Um, and in fact, um, hopefully it's all right. The internet line keeps coming up on my on my screen. Um, so I I really didn't want to go back to doing the musicals. And if anything, the talk of London for me was a great way of getting into town, but but being able to be playing different music every night. 
Um, I admire those people that do those West End musicals. Lots of my friends do them, uh, and I really do. But once you've sort of done it after a couple of days, two or three days, it becomes a job. And I didn't really get into playing music because of that reason. I got into music because, because I loved you know, working in a group setting, making new songs every night, you know, that enjoyment. And, and I felt that a lot of my friends that were doing the West End scene were like, look, after about three or four weeks, you're playing the same songs every night, et cetera, et cetera. So I, that, that decision um, straight away was never going to happen um, after, the, after I was coming to the end of the Talk of London. Um, and I think that the Talk of London, I never intended to stay there for 10 years. That wasn't my intention. As you know, Stefan, uh, I'm very fortunate, OK, just in case she listens to it, to meet my wife at the Talk of London. She was a dancer there. She actually never had any intention of staying there as long as she did either. Both of us were meant to come in for a couple of years and go off our set, go off and do other things. But uh, of course, as you know, um, because I don't know if this is a video or just a podcast, but my extreme good looks obviously win over women. Um, <laughs> I so see. Anyway, we... You can say that, but I can call people a little. I got it. <laughs> I got it. I'm learning new things here. <laughs> so um, it was like, well, what am I going to do? And I'd always, I'd always dabbled with the teaching. I'd always had an interest in um, more, not necessarily teaching uh, young students, beginners to play the drums, but more of an interest on how the way that we develop ourselves, how that we think, how two students, one can understand a concept that comes along, but someone else can't. So I was always fascinated by that, okay? So I think looking back now, I go, I would imagine teaching was going to be where I wanted to go. That was number one. Number two, I had control of it, Stefan. That was the other thing. I'd, at that stage, whenever those years were, I got to the stage where I'd been in many bands, many musical situations, um, and basically either the band had been dropped by record labels or I, I'd got fired from a gig or whatever it might have been for situations that were out of my control. There were nothing to do with my drumming ability. I could always relate to it if there were, you know, I did get fired because of my drumming ability, because of skills that I brought, but there was a lot more situations, like I remember doing TV shows back in the day, the old Top of the Pops, um, and then they said, oh, we're looking for change now, we're looking for black, muscly drummers with hair, and I was like a white, receding drummer with no hair, and I'm like, well, how's that got anything to do with my, me playing the drums? But that obviously is reality. So I got to this stage where I was coming to the end of the Talk of London, uh, I think um, we certainly were married at that stage, but we wanted to start a family. And I was like, right, what can I do that I can control? I want to stay in this industry. I love the music industry. I love playing the drums. What can I do that I can control that maybe doesn't take me away from the family? Um, I probably missed that boat now at that stage of... Um, you know, being the next Charlie Watts, those days had gone, I'd realised that was never going to happen, you know, getting in a band and the band becomes famous and that's how you impact your industry. I knew that wasn't going to happen, I knew I'd, I'd literally passed that date. Um, and so I think the teaching um, started from there. Now, uh, also with the teaching, and I think this is quite important for the listeners, was I didn't go into this lightheartedly. I didn't suddenly go, oh, I've got nothing else to do, I'm going to start teaching. I really went into it in a big way, as in I looked, there wasn't the information there is now, but I, I read books about pe the way that our brains work, how we can 
can um, take on information and knowledge. Um, I went back over my teachers and looked what worked and what didn't work. And then I put the hours in. Um, I remember at the Talk of London, and probably when you were there, uh, for about two or three years, I remember building up a teaching practice and maybe working 30 hours a week, 40 hours a week teaching. Oh, my and, God. And doing the Talk of London at night. And I do remember one time somebody said to me, one of the musicians said to me, um, and it wasn't you, Stefan, because you had a, you, you again, you got it. But one of the older musicians, I remember them saying to me one day, oh, you know, the gig's coming to an end and um, you've, you're so lucky, you know, you've got your teaching to work into. And I was like, you know what? Yes, I am lucky, but I've just spent two or three years working 60, 70 hours a week building up something <clears throat> that I could jump into. So, um, so that's the answer to that question. And then I, I also decided that when I started teaching, I wasn't going to teach for three months, then stop, go on tour for six months, then come back. I knew that this was something I really wanted to throw everything into. And now I'm not saying that people that are watching this can't do that. It wasn't right for me. <clears throat> I wanted to really go for this. And I was fortunate. I picked up a couple of students at the beginning that came through uh, Kitchen Records at the time. A couple of, um, in fact, I don't think they're around anymore, so I can say it now, but a band called God Machine was my first sort of big thing that they came along and they said, look, we've got the drummer and we're in the studio and basically he, he hasn't, doesn't really know what he's doing in the studio. Will you come in and, and oh, I wouldn't say teach him, but I would say coach him. Um, mm. And it was just silly little things that, you know, he didn't, he wouldn't keep his foot down on the hi-hat when he was playing time for the session and, and little things that I walked into and was like, wow, okay, this, this is bizarre that I'm now maybe was being booked to play on that record, but now I'm coming in to coach those. And so, but I liked that. I liked that kind of, so I'm, I was in there. Um, so hopefully that answers your question, does it, Stefan? Yeah, absolutely. And I and just I want to pick on where you left it off there, because it seems like uh, that you then got into that, like in a sort of in a in a bigger way that you had loads of um, drummers in bands, well-to-do mm. bands that you became the drum coach, right? That it became a thing because I remember us at the time talking, to, you know, here and then, and that became a thing. So was it just word of mouth that, you know, from then on, from the, what was the band called? Gold Scent or Gold Gold Scent? Well, that one was Sorry. called The God Machine. The God Machine. How did it develop yeah. from there? Uh, I think you just get called. There's a couple of things that are really, really important because am I the best? No. There's, everyone, there's loads and loads of, of great teachers that can do what I do. I think number one is confidentiality. Super important. You know, and it's funny, but years and years later, somebody once said to me in the when I set up MikeDelver.com, some an editor of a magazine once said to me, "Oh, you can't you can't keep anything a secret." And I sort of laughed at him and thought, "If only you knew, because <laughs> I only let you know things that I want people, other people to know." You know, and I think I was probably at that stage in the middle of the Olympics, and he didn't even know I was I was doing you know training and the, all the drama's up for that. So. Um, I think confidentiality is super important. As you, again, you know this. Um, you, it's if people. I have students now um, that don't want other people to know about them having lessons. Um, so I sign confidentiality contracts, or um, I just don't discuss it. Obviously, we live in a world of social media, so it's very, very careful. You have to be very careful about all of that kind of stuff. So I think confidentiality was very good because 
that particular drummer with God Machine, was he, again, a great drummer? No, you could have got other drummers in there to go. He was the right drummer for God Machine. Mm. Uh, if I remember rightly, this is all coming back to me now, but I think he played with mallets. I don't think he ever played with sticks. They were a Californian sort of gothy rock band. Unfortunately, sadly, I think the singer um, actually took his own life, um, which, so anyone that knows of that band back in the day, um, but um, but it's confident. You know, the last thing he needs is for me to build his trust as a student or or whatever I was to him, and then go out there and blurt it out to everybody. Like I said, especially now with social media. So number one was trust, and as you know more than anyone else, that um, the record companies, management companies, the industry rely on that. They don't want their they, you know they got they want to keep things under wraps. So trust. I certainly knew what I was doing. Um, like a lot of people did, you know, I wasn't the best at that. Other people could have done what I did, um, but I knew what I was doing. I could save them time, you know, if stupid things like I just said with the hi-hat. It was like, hang on a minute. You know, when you're playing a three-minute take and you're you're hitting the hi-hats and the hi-hats keep are inconsistent, I would go in and go, right, look, i tell you what, you're not opening the hi-hats. Let's lock the hi-hats down. Look, there's your little circle point on the symbol. Aim for that point all the time. And now the engineer's going to love you. Then all of a sudden, the engineer management are like, oh, this is brilliant. What have you done? And it's like, it's not rocket science, but it works. Okay. Um, so it was learning to, to, to fix things very quickly. And then going back to what I just said, and I'm always doing this now, even, you know, the adjustment of when we went online, uh, the mental side of things as well. How can you relate to somebody? How can you relate to... And I'm not saying that that particular drama was, because I can't really recall it. Um, but if they, they've got a little bit of an attitude or they're in a big band and they think that they're, you know, you've got to approach that in a different way. But then there's another approach where you might be able to say, you know, you might to, might be able to do a whiplash instant with a, with a teacher student. You know, it's, 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 it's man management. It's, a, it's, it's managing the situation, getting the person on, on board, and I think that, um, and that's how that worked. But then I also was fortunate because when I started teaching um, younger people, I never taught, I didn't really teach beginners. I've never really done that, which by the way is the hardest. Teaching beginners is a lot harder than what I ever did because they've already come into you with enthusiasm and they want to learn more. Um, where teaching beginners, you've got to almost like convince them, look, look how cool the drums are. This is why you've got to practice. But then I was fortunate to have some success with some students that I taught from 14, 15 years old that then became, I, I still are, you know, Shree So Say now playing Simple Minds and was with Mika and Fader, Emily Dolan Davis, The Darkness, um, Brian Ferry. Uh, what's she doing? Uh, kids, uh, she's now doing uh, The Kids of the Voice. Those, they came to me right from the beginning. They were, they were young kids. And so then they went on and had success. Kapil Chafidi from the Mystery Jets. Uh, and I know I'm missing those out. But, but then, so then your class as that person as well. It's like, oh, great. I'm, I've got my grade eight now, if that's anything that they base themselves on. Or I've got my grade seven. I'm 14, 15 years old. Now I need to go to Mike. Because Mike's going to now nurture me hopefully for that next section so i think i ticked a few of those boxes it's such an interesting um you mentioned the human aspect of it and it's what's interesting is that it's so easy to go in especially me being an engineer it's so easy to go in and replace someone's um performance that's not satisfactory but then the question arises why on earth would you re replace that 
performance if the band has been brought in specifically because it's the sound which you're looking for. Mm. And it's so great that you're that that you're championing champ, championing that yeah. that that aspect of supporting people and helping people. And it, and I I I can imagine it must have been really tough sometimes, as you say, meeting these personalities who have been brought in, you know, with this band, you know, and you're and now you have to deal with. Okay, I'm now sort of your teacher-ish sort of, but I'm re- you're like yeah. I think coach is a good word, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, it, yeah. So go on, James. No, go no. On. So I was I was just I was yeah. just going to ask, but on the other side of that, have you ever been asked to to replace someone's drums? Um, not since I've been teaching. But yeah. then there's a reason I wouldn't. Yeah, great. I wouldn't yeah, yeah. do it. I wouldn't do it. That's not what I'm there for. Sure. I don't. And in fact, it contradicts everything I would say if I did. Yeah. Because now that drummer's feeling threatened by me coming in. Um, so, so no, I wouldn't. And as you would know, James, that, you know, I'm, I'm listening to the Dave Grohl book at the moment, uh, listening as in, um, I, when I go running, I like an audio book and Dave Grohl's in my book. I can read, but I just fancy, I want to listen to it. Um, and you think to yourself, like Dave Grohl, <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Um, you think that Dave Grohl <laughs> has been probably as, as not only as a musician, but as a drummer, obviously has been you know, a major part of our industry for the last couple of decades. Mm. Um, Was he the greatest drummer at the beginning? No. But without Dave Grohl, Nirvana would have never sound like Nirvana. You know, so he even says he didn't, he had, he went and had a few jazz lessons and he didn't really get his head around it. So the last thing he needs is someone, I mean, by the way, just for the record, I never did Dave Grohl, so I don't, I'm not saying I did, but my example, my point is, the last thing they need is me to come along and go, oh, no, 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 you're playing wrong, you're holding your mm. sticks wrong, you're, you're, you're playing, you know, you need some more of this in there, you need more of that. Because otherwise then, what they've been signed as, as a band, now I'm taking that out of there. You've got to keep that live. I mean, the, the Arctic Monkeys are a classic example. You know, you've got to keep that live energy. And then maybe when I come along, my job is to go, right, great, we've got to keep all that stuff that's going on that you've just recorded in the album. Now we've got to make it work for you live. You know, now we've got to make it work that you can do that for two hours Mm. without dipping off. You know, the engineers, the sound man does not want to be turning up your kit halfway through the, you know, 30 minutes into the show. He's got to think about the, he's got to think about the the guitar solos or the, he's got enough on his plate or her plate. They don't want to be, they've got, you've got to go out there and, and keep that energy going for two hours. You've got to be hitting things in the right place for two hours. You've got to be hitting the dynamics for two hours. But you've got to keep that, you know, my my job then is, but you've still got to be Dave Grohl or, or Matt Howders in the Arctic Monkeys case. You've still got to bring that to the table. So, no, I'd never replace them. Um, it, it has been done, um, but not normally because of their drumming ability, to be fair, with bands like that. Normally because of other issues, you know, a broken arm in, in mm. Matt Howders' case. Um but um, I, I haven't come in and done it because then they're going to go, again, you would know James better than anyone else. If this is the sound that the band are producing, you need to replace that with someone that's got that kind of yeah. sound. I mean, Taylor Hawkins is a great example. Taylor Hawkins is a great, he sounds like he's got that Dave Grohl edge to his playing, et cetera, et cetera. So it's that, that's their personality. So no, I'm hopefully I'm there just to, I mean, one of my, Steve Forrest, who played for Placebo, who I looked after for, oh, Know, 18 months maybe I remember Steve used to say oh you're my guru and I was like don't call me a guru I don't want to be your drum guru that I just don't <laughs> want that title so I don't think of myself as a teacher maybe mentor 
maybe, I don't know what you'd like to call it, but I'm just there. To, I mean, it's like a football coach in a certain way, isn't it? And then the other thing, and I just need to stress this, James, if you, exactly what you've just said. People then say, um, well, why are you looking after that drummer? You know, he's so much or she's so much better than you. And it's like, yeah, but hang on a minute. Mike Tyson had a coach. Mm. His coach probably couldn't beat him up, but he was a coach. He taught <laughs> it. He was teaching him. Alex Ferguson was the, the manager of, of Manchester United. He wasn't going to get out on the pitch with Ronaldo and go, come on, give me the ball. I've got to put it in the back of the net. <laughs> he was coaching the team. Brilliant it's a completely enough. different thing, totally. you know. Totally. <clears throat> yeah. In a, yeah, brilliant. I love that. Hopefully it, that it does. Thank you. Yes, great. Absolutely. And and you already mentioned it. We got to talk about this, of course, because uh, also, like, as you put in your own bio, you become sort of the guy to put massive drum corps together, basically tons and tons of drummers for various events. And of course, we got to talk about the thousand drummers that you put together for the Olympics. We just want to know about that. That wasn't me. <laughs> Great. <laughs> Next. Um, well, so uh, you've got a lovely uh, clock on your wall. This is a manufacturer from, um, uh, is it 1912 when the Titanic is sank? A, is, uh, this, is this a video uh, podcast? It's not. Is it just no, a, no, it's no, not. It's oh, not it's a such a pity because you should have seen Stefan's face then. That was just priceless. It was like... <laughs> ah, so not true you should all see my face and i put my best poker face on um so what 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 do you okay so what do you want to know why well, how, how did it what? how did it all come about how did it happen that you became the go-to guy for massive uh events like Again, did you mention another one i don't watch any television but the did you mention lad yeah, did the UEFA, lad did the lad books commercial yeah so uh um, so what hans, hans zimmer Oh, well, yeah. there you go, Lord. Yeah, Tell us just... about it. I mean, also, like, coming back to the Olympics, a thousand dramas, insane. I've seen it. It was like freaking gave me the yeah. heebie-jeebies. Tell us yeah, about it. it. Okay, so, again, it's contacts, and it's it's coming in, doing your job. When I first set up the website, MikeDobber.com, which was 23 years ago this month, which is just bizarre, my, my brief to everyone that works for me and for the, the website was, I just want to promote drumming. I'm not promoting product i'm not promoting anything else i'm promoting drumming um and then it's up to the companies to get on board and decide whether people are going to play zildjian symbols sabian symbols dw drum. It's, a, it's just promoting drumming and the way i look at it was if we can promote drumming and how great drumming is and you know on a mental aspect and on a physical aspect hopefully more people will play the drums and then it's you know it's that pyramid sales it's going to go on and on so um the olympics um, was originally Ralph Salmons was was approached. Great friend of mine, really good buddy, great drummer. I've known Ralph since the West End days. In fact, I think he probably did a few depths actually at the Talk of London back in the day. Oh, wow. um, He's so, coming to us um, next week, by the way. <clears throat> uh, well, give him a great big over-the-air kiss. He's, he's a lovely <laughs> off. Um, and you can ask him the same question. But anyway, um, so Ralph was first approached. I, I can't remember... I'm really apologise, but I can't remember the name of the the original um, Olympics musical director. But it's the guy that's the musical director for all the Cameron Macintosh stuff in the West End. But anyway, it might come to me during the chat. So um, Ralph went along for the original meetings. They didn't really know what was going on. All all that we knew was that Danny Boyle was going to be the uh, producer of the opening ceremony of the Olympics. That was the end of the brief. 
So Ralph went along for a big meeting, and I think from, from what I remember and from what Ralph's told me, it was like you, they sat in a big sort of auditorium with iPads, so they were asked a load of questions, and you'd, you know, it was very unpersonal sort of setup. Anyway, they said they wanted, I knew already that they were going to have, a, they wanted a thousand drummers because um, I think they advertised it in the Evening Standard, and a few of my students had put themselves forward. But me being um, British and me being like I was, was the same as everyone else in the country, who was like, that's going to be shit. It's going to be rubbish. Everything we do is rubbish in this country, so it's going to be rubbish. I'd never seen an Olympics opening ceremony in my life anyway. So anyway, <clears throat> so to cut a very long story short, Ralph came, he came to me and he said, look, um, I'm, I've got this job that's come up. Um, it's early days. Um, do you want to be involved? I think it'd be perfect for you. You know, I need someone like you that can come and help me out. So I... Um, got involved and we then employed, we came to this concept that we would have like, I can't remember, 25 professional, they called them drum captains, but 25 people to help us. Anyway, um, after the first batch of auditions, I said to them, I'm not doing this Ralph, I said it's shit, it's rubbish. <laughs> um, the, they had no idea, as in the, the organisers, LOCOG, who are the people that own the Olympics, I said it, it, they have got no idea what they're doing, uh, the standard was poor, um, and I have to be honest with you, at the time, although I wasn't driven by money, the money was, was poor because I was like, it's going to take a lot of time of me not teaching. Mm. I'm going to have to lose money to do it for nine months of my life. So um, it came up to, a, I don't know, three or four weeks before Christmas, and I'd met Danny Boyle once, maybe. We would do these massive big auditions with 100 drummers at a time, and there was about 100 people in these in this big film studios. And Danny was at the back. He might have shook my hand, but that might have been it. And I, so I came out, I walked. And so did Ralph, I think. I think Ralph was like, yeah, I, you know, I feel the same. So this was about three or four weeks before Christmas, and that was the end of it. And then I, I was in L.A., actually, in January, because, you know, I'm obviously a seasoned touring professional that goes all over the place <laughs> anyway once a year i go to la for the big music show and i was in la and uh, i get a phone call from claire and uh, she phoned me up and she said oh mike she said it's claire here i'm danny boyle's assistant she said um we want danny wants to get you in and talk to you about the olympics opening ceremony i was like well i'm not doing it i'm not involved anymore um Martin Kosh, by the way, is the musical director. Martin there Kosh. There you go. Penny And Martin, Martin Kosh was the mm. musical director for every bit of music that happened for all of the ceremony, Pretty not the opening. Okay, but anyway, wow. so um, I said, she said, no, he wants to meet you. He wants to get you in. He wants to talk to you. He said, she said, we know you've walked. We've been told um, by LOCOG, the organisers, um, but we want to get you in. We want to see if we can make it work. So, um, so I did. I came back after February. I went and saw him. He showed me an animation of the opening ceremony, which I was just like, what am I, what am I looking at? This is incredible. You know, towers coming out of the ground, um, you know, all those people. I mean, it's just the, the, for those that haven't seen it, just go onto YouTube. It's the Industrial Revolution. Mm. It was at nine o'clock in the, it's the first part after all the, the cricketers, and sheep walking around all of a sudden he kicked off with the industrial revolution and he showed me this animation and i was like oh my goodness and he said right what do we got to do he said and what danny did 
which he did on a few occasions, and now it's documented, but I, I think he was brilliant at doing it, was Danny stood up to the organisers all the time. He would constantly stand up and, and fight them. And he said to them, uh, after the first batch of auditions, and from what I'm gathering, it was happening to other departments as well. You know, all the other departments were having the same issues. Danny went, right, I'm bringing in my team, I'm doing it my way, and if you don't like it, I'm out. I want my team. So, uh, and he said to me, look, I want you to head that up, head the drum section up. What do we have to do? So, um, Rick Smith from... Um, um, oh, there we go again. He wrote all the music for Train Spotter. Oh, come back. Underground, underground. <laughs> from Underground was the musical director. He was brought in to do the opening, uh, all the musical f music for the opening ceremony. So, like I said, the opening ceremony was almost separate. That was Danny Boyle's baby, and we were all under that umbrella. So, I spoke to Ralph, and I told Ralph, and Ralph was really, really cool. Ralph was still going to be involved, but Ralph was really cool and said, No, Mike, I totally understand. Um, you know, I, he, he had a couple of tours coming up and other things as well. Um, so he said um, it was cool. So Ralph, but like I said, Ralph was still involved, but he, they, he didn't, I, you know, basically I, I ran that, that sort of that drum, whole drum thing out. And that's how that developed. Um, what I learned, I think I probably knew this before, but what I learned when you work with people like Danny Boyle is, that Danny Boyle not only is he a genius, and I use that term very, very lightly, but his vision was absolutely incredible. His eye for detail was amazing. You know, the Industrial Revolution started at nine o'clock on the, on the nail because he knew that the lighting, the natural lighting mm. was going to be at this perfect time. He knew that when the towers were coming up at the, out, out of the ground, that that would be at about 11 minutes past nine and the lights for those towers, seven towers coming out the ground. He knew. And, I mean, he would pull me up on little things like in, when we were in the stadium rehearsing, drummers would be coming down the, the, through the, through the, um, down the steps onto the pitch and he'd stop and he'd go, no, no, no. He said, um, Mike, he said, the drummers are coming down like, you know, 1.3 seconds too early. Can you, and wow. I'd musically, yeah, exactly. And then I'd musically work this out. Okay, well, okay, we do. But then he would say to me afterwards, he'd go, right, the reason for that is because there's a guy climbing up a tower. There's four and a half thousand people involved in that one section. And he'd like, there's a, there's a, cl someone's climbing up a tower and you miss the dynamics of the drummers walking down this. I mean, he had that kind of vision. And I, <laughs> I had so much respect for him. I mean, don't get me wrong. It was really tough. Um, but we re-auditioned, we did, we, I can't remember what we had um, left over from the first batch of auditions, but we re-auditioned the second audition, and this time we advertised it in, in drum magazines and advertised it mm. where drummers would come. So we got a decent, so, so we had a different clientele. Uh, and I think we got it right. We had a really good balance of people that couldn't play, never played before, and drummers, which we wanted. Mm. We had a good balance of people that could move, which were normally the ones that couldn't, couldn't play the drums, but the drummers could play the drums, but they couldn't move. <laughs> so I needed a good balance. <laughs> I think we got a really good dynamics of, of male and female because there was a lot of standing around and it, you know, you only, again, goes into the, um, the science behind it, but the behaviour of people worked better like that in big groups. Um, so we had a really, really good balance. Um, and I'm super, super proud of the opening ceremony. Um, I'm super proud of um, all those dramas and what they did. I look back now, and the older I get, I look back and think, wow, 
did we really do that? I mean, one thing that was amazing was the, so the, the Industrial Revolution section, um, like I said, there was four and a half thousand people involved in that, a um, thousand drummers. That we sort of, although it was live, it had to be live because we didn't, we couldn't nail it to the second on how long it would take because if it rained, if, when, if anyone's watched it, you'll see what I mean. But when they're clearing the grass, if it rained, it would be heavier, it's going to take longer. So the music had to be elasticated. We had to, we had to be able to move it on the night, which we did. The opening ceremony drumming section, the Industrial Revolution, if I remember rightly, was about a minute and a half longer than sometimes the rehearsals. Um, so we had the ability to be able to do that live, which we did, because everyone was being spoken to in their ears. But the hard part for me was then, about six weeks before, maybe even less than that, maybe it was about four weeks before, um, Danny came to me and he said, look, I need you to do the um, Athletes Parade. And I was like, oh, wow, okay. And he said, now, the problem with the Athletes Parade is it's the worst part of the... <laughs> Hopefully no one's from the Olympics is watching this, listening to this. It's the worst part about the Olympics, but it's the most important part to the athletes, etc., etc. But there's thousands and thousands of people walk out onto the ground pitch and they've got a TV point, A to B, where they come out and they're waving and they've got the cameras out, etc., etc. Um but it drags on and people are going off and making a cup of tea. And so Danny was like, I want to make this the quickest athletes parade ever. Um, and I think we got it down to an hour and 40 minutes. And I think most of them were two hours. And the idea that Danny had was he said, I want, well, he wanted drums involved in the whole thing anyway. He wanted the energy of drums. He wanted live, that kind of energy, that excitement of people playing and, and that feel. So he wanted that anyway. But the idea was that we had drums all the way around this, the stadium on the pitch and then as each country came out behind them would be 10 drummers and the idea of the playing but the idea of the 10 drummers were they were pushing <laughs> the athletes along so they were literally if you know you had these six foot nine basketball players coming out and you got like this little five foot two girl with playing the drums and she's like moving them along so it was and of course that energy and but we didn't know i didn't know every country had a different piece of music we never knew how many athletes how long that piece of music was going to be because we didn't know how how um, many athletes would do the opening ceremony because some would do it and some wouldn't because they were competing the next day and so i had to live tell the drummers in their ears what to play and how to play it so i'd be going and what i would do is i'd always They'd be playing. So let's say, for example, they're playing a beat. Doom, 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 doom. And they'd be doing that, go into the music. And while they're playing that, I'd be going, right, OK, now, everybody, I'm going to count you in. After four, now what we're going to do is all the bass spins, all I need you to do is just the bass spins playing one and the three. So you're going to go boom, boom, boom. And then I go, right, get ready. Just, just with your right hand, here it comes. One, two, three. And the whole thing would change and all the drummers wow. would just be doing this. Or then I'd go, right, OK, Snare drums, I want you all to put your hands up in the air, cross your sticks, and we're going to come up to it. Bass spins keep going. One, two, three, four. And all of a sudden, all the drummers... So it looked like a well-choreographed... <laughs> and, and, and I heard afterwards... I mean, I don't know how precise this was, but I heard afterwards that apparently they reckon that the, the TV views, maybe it's now, has been something like four billion people have watched wow. that oh, opening God. ceremony. Um, uh, and you think that some of those thing. people, or maybe 50% of those people, had never played exactly. And it's live. 
And then we got, I mean, I even did things like when England came out and the music, some of the music was great, which Rick Smith had sorted all that out. But I think when um, England came, or Great Britain came out, it was to um, David Bowie's um, Heroes. Oh, brilliant. Amazing piece of music. You know, it, it was just incredible. I mean, Bowie was meant to be at the, he was going to be doing the opening ceremony. Um, um, Danny had asked him to do it, but he had had a heart conditions and he couldn't get insurance. But I mean, I was gutted about that. But anyway, um, when Heroes came out, so when Great Britain came out, which was the last team, I mean, it was just the, the feel. I mean, even now I'm feeling it. Mm, it was yeah. just an amazing feeling. I'm in the tower. I've got TV screens all around me so I can see all around the ground, all around the pitch, and I'm talking in their ears. But I'm right over the top of the, the entrance where the the uh, the teams come in and Great Britain came in and I remember as they started I, I said to them right okay so they're all playing I've got them all going I was like right okay I need um I need one of you now right and I, I can't remember what it was and Sally right Sally I want you to run out and I want you to go and give um Tom Daly a lick on the face you know obviously I didn't want him to do that but I was just like winding him up going right now and she's like looking up at me like going, <laughs> <laughs> But, you know, my daughter loves Tom Daly. Just go give him a kiss. Do it now, you know. But anyway, <laughs> so, and then from there, after I did that, we finished the opening ceremony. That was it. We were finished. I mean, I sat on the tube on the way home with a load of, loads of people that had been to see it, and I thought, if I turned around to them and told them what I'd just done, they wouldn't believe me, you know. Um, wow. And then I think after that, I, I, that was it. We would finish on the opening ceremony and then the Olympics happened. And I think that Danny Boyle and the team did an amazing job at that opening ceremony. It was incredible what they did. Um, and he was so modest and, um, like I said, a complete genius. And then I think after that, you start getting that call again. People start saying... Oh, I mean, um, the Hans Zimmer situation apparently was that he liked the rhythm that we played, which the main driving rhythm on the Industrial Revolution was which I interpreted like this, play the drums so your mum can see me on TV, play the drums so your mum can see me on TV. So that's how we said it, because they, weren't, they couldn't play like the drums. entertainment on legs. <laughs> well, well, that see, so so coming into that, they could be playing a do, and I go right. We're going in to play the drum, and because we'd rehearsed it so many times, you our brains recognise melodies more than they recognise rhythms. And so when you go right, here we go, play the drum. Everyone would go, okay, oh, play the drum so my mum can see me on TV. They're not going to recognise that with a piece of music, or they'd want that piece of music all the time. So this way, it worked. So anyway, from there. Hans apparently liked that rhythm and he used it in the Superman theme. There's a YouTube video with a load of drummers playing it. And apparently when Harvey Goldsmith asked him to do um, the first two live concerts, which were, I'm still going to call it the Hammersmith Apollo, but whatever it's called these days, the Milky Way chocolate <laughs> box <laughs> hall or whatever they, look, they like, want to call it now. But anyway... <laughs> Hammersmith Apollo, um, he was like, right, okay. He said, um, he said, he went to Isabel Griffins and he said, can you get me the guy that did the Olympics? So I get a phone call. She goes, oh, um, Hans Zimmer wants to speak to you. Is that all right? I was like, what? <laughs> so yeah, so Hans, Hans phoned me. Um, and on that, those first two shows, we had uh, six, seven, eight, nine, nine drummers playing on that one. Um, so I think you just, again, I think you get called. Your conf all those things that I just talked about from the beginning, confidentiality, you could do the job, but then a lot of people could do the job. But I went in, I did the job, 
I'm gonna whatever you get from me, you're gonna get a hundred percent. You know, I'm gonna go because it. Don't get me wrong. The Olympics was very, very stressful. I mean, it was super stressful. Oh, yeah. There was lots, of, lots of egos you had to deal with. Danny Boyle not being one of those, but there is a lot of egos. There's a lot of people that are trying to make <clears throat> a job out of nothing. So you're dealing with all those, all those dynamics, long hours. Um, I mean, the security alone trying to get into that place because when we were in the stadium, it was like you know, you were going through an air, aircraft security every day. Um, but I wouldn't change it. So I think that the, to answer your, maybe the long way round to answer your questions from that, I think did the ITV awards, um, um, UEFA, uh, the Champions League final, that was 500 dramas on that. Um, Hans Zimmer, Ladbrook's commercial, which was this year. I think exactly everything that I said at the beginning about confidentiality, knowing how to work it out, knowing how to do with it, working with all the different people, um, not taking any shit, but be prepared to know when to fight your battles. You know, being a professional musician is all about that, isn't it? Mm. Knowing when to fight your battles, when to stand up, when to go, you know what, I'll let you have that one, but you're not having that one. Um, and I think that's the same same thing. It's just, um, you know, it's, it started by word of mouth because, like I said, if I hadn't met Ralph back in the Talk of London or pre-Talk of London, I knew Ralph, then maybe when we get to this job... Ralph wouldn't have gone, mm, yeah, I know someone that could do that. Ash Soen was the same for me on the Ladbrokes commercial. Um, Ash Soen was the one that said they asked Ash to do it, and Ash was like, I don't know how to do it. But look, I know a guy who can, and then, of course, when they look at you, well, I don't have a CV, but when they look at your CV and go, oh, he's done the Olympics, well, he knows what he's doing, <laughs> we'll get him in. Well, yeah, certainly. Um, yeah, and, yeah, and so... Mike, on... <clears throat> On that note, because I mean that that Olympic story is totally riveting. In the opening ceremony, was riveting. I, I can't remember yeah. watching it. It was fantastic. So yeah, really, like wow. Um, and uh, being mindful of of, of the time, uh, maybe maybe one more question, which have has to do with balance, because you obviously build a fantastic reputation for yourself and what it is you do. So you on on one <clears> level, you're teaching one to one. You're organizing drum workshops, you're supporting young drummers to come through. You have built up an international network of all the all the great drummers. I think recently you ran a podcast or a podcast during um, uh, lockdown and you had your own television show. That's a lot of stuff. That's why I said early on when we started out. So you, you're one of the most industrious uh, people I know. Your output is just tremendous. And maybe... Um, before we let you go, because you're obviously going back and do your work um, at 11, as you said. But um, what's your tip there on balance? Uh, how do you manage all those different areas of work? Okay, well, um, super important. You know, um, time management is super important. You've got to have time management. And you've got to have time as well for yourself. You know, this is... And I think that maybe over the years... I've learned that balance. When I go and do something, I will go deep in. I will go. I will give it the extra mile. Um, I running is my thing, or fitness. And I know again, I, I know you know me a long time, so and I've always done that. And that's my switch off. That's my time when I can just go. You know what? I I well, first of all, it makes me get think creatively. You know, if I need to work things out or think things through, um, how I'm going to do things, I find if I go for a run. I can creatively think about that stuff. But, I mean, drumming, 
I'm really passionate about drumming um, and music, you know, and even more so over the last 18 months. I know I joked at the beginning about my rant about the, um, which had to be done, <laughs> about Wi-Fi, et cetera, et cetera. But, you know, a lot of people have been hurting over the last 18 months, as you know. Um, you know people in the music industry like I do that have, re I mean, really been hurting. Big, big names um, that maybe feel that they can't come out and talk about it because they need this. But the, the, we've, we've been hurting it. And, but, so I'm, I, I love the music industry and I love the drum industry. You know, I, I don't take it lightly. And this isn't... Uh, uh, anyone watching this or listening to this, I don't want you to think I'm trying... I'm not name-dropping now. Although I'm going to name-drop, it's not about the name-dropping. But I grew up loving drummers like Steve Gadd, Stuart Copeland, you know, Phil Gould, um, Dave Weckl, Peter Erskine. To have those guys drop you messages or, or you know, being able to help them out or or now, especially over the last 18 months, I, sometimes I have to pinch myself and go, did, did that just happen? You know, Stuart mm -hmm. Copeland, great example. You know, we, I did, um, like you say, a live Instagrams. I was doing live Instagrams during lockdown because people needed it. People, not only did people that were sitting around with nothing to do need it, but also the drummers needed it. They needed some kind of, you know, all of a sudden they weren't, they couldn't get out there and be creative with other musicians. They were locked down. And, and I remember contacting guys like Stuart and saying, look, I'm doing this live Instagram. By the time I'd finished, the BBC had been in contact and were like, can you do something with us? And I'd say to Stuart, oh, the BBC, no, no, I'm not, I'm not, I don't want to do that. So I don't take that lightly that those people are, um, that are willing to do stuff like that with me. But to, so to come back to your question, <clears throat> I think it's the love of the drums and the music industry and the people within it that make me want to keep doing stuff. Um, and I think that then the time management, then I'm like, well, really, if I'm doing a job that I love to do, then it doesn't really come to place. So as long as I can get out in the morning, go for a nice run, take the dog for a walk. You know, I don't want much in life. I've got simple things in life for me. Um, but I'm still practicing. I still like to play my drums. Um, you know, I still like to teach. So I will go, right, today's teaching day. So, you know, I won't be answering any messages today. I'll be teaching all day. Um, but then if tomorrow might be a day where I'm doing something else, then I'll, I'll put all my attention on that. So it's really about time management. But then I do think after 57 years, which is what I am now, um, Stefan, as you said, I was old. Um, <laughs> I just I feel fortunate and especially after the last 18 months, that I can still be doing this mm. um, and doing these podcasts. I think, uh, you know, one thing I'd like to say, um, as you know, both of you again will endorse is this is the best this is the best thing to be doing in our lives we are doing something that we love doing okay there's parts of our jobs that um are tough you know maybe the the, the practice side or some days we don't feel that great or etc etc but we are doing the best job that we could do mm. if somebody had told me at 13 years old when I made this decision I was going to be playing the drums if somebody had said listen at 57 you're still going to be doing it and mm, breaking news you're not going to be the greatest drummer in the world breaking news you're not going to get yourself into that band that you thought you were going to get into and tour the world for the next 50 years and be super famous or whatever BS that means but you're still going to be doing it when you're 57 and actually there's going to be a few landmark occasions like 
meeting a young bass player called Stefan at the Top of London <laughs> in 1996. Mike <laughs> you are one of a kind. <laughs> <laughs> so, time management and passion. And be nice. <clears throat> yes. Wow. Yes. All right. Well, I mean... What a wonderful wrap up. Are you professional or something? <laughs> no, I'm not professional. <laughs> and for those who noticed that we didn't have an intro, Mike is actually a drummer. Um, just in case that has slipped uh, past you. <laughs> <laughs> I do work for Vodafone, by the way. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, coming back to that. Jeez, like full circle with this guy. Full circle. <laughs> There we thank go. you. Mike, Mike Dolber. Yeah. Thank you so much. MikeDolber.com. Thank, thank you, you for much. doing this. 